0: Well, hey, welcome to the podcast of the Kelly Cotrera Show for Wednesday, September 16th. Today on the podcast, a rare Canadian diamond may make history at auction this month, and we'll tell you all about it and why it's so rare and just how much it could fetch. Plus, we'll be talking to our astronomy expert from York University, Paul Delaney, about the possibility of life on Venus and why we keep looking for life on inhospitable planets where we could never survive. Let's start off with a message from our Premier. In Ontario, we've done better than most, but we can't take that for granted. A second wave of COVID-19, it's coming. And the officials are telling us
1: that the second wave could be more complicated than the first one. So we can't sit
0: back, we can't wait. And that's why we've been working around the clock to get ready for the second wave. All right. Travis Danrash, our Queen's Park Bureau Chief for Global News, joins the show. Travis, welcome to the program.
2: Morning. Good to talk to you. It's been a little bit.
0: Yeah, it has been a little bit. Hope you're doing well. Uh, see you all the time on Global News and hear you on the other shows, so I know that you are. So enough with the pleasantries. Let's just get right to Ford. He says a second wave is coming in with complications. Did he give any more, um, uh, I guess, elaboration as to what he means uh, by this one could be complicated?
2: Well, I think that they are, they're looking at the the case numbers. They're very concerned by what they're seeing in Ottawa, Peel and Toronto. uh, And they are trying to figure out, you know, ways to maintain the reopening of the economy in areas of the province uh, where the case numbers are low, because there are, I think, 15 fluctuates between 15 and 18 regions from day to day, which, you know, basically have zero cases to the areas where we are seeing this increase. Uh, You know, we have new reporting this morning that the government is putting a proposal to cabinet today that looks at some of these private social gatherings, which, you know, the health minister has said, the medical experts have said are part of the major problem uh, in these, you know, problem areas. And they are looking at reducing the um, number of people that are allowed in these social gatherings so that is an announcement that could come as early as today possibly tomorrow
0: let me ask you about that if i could travis for a second and that is going to be in a regional approach that the province is going to take right like basically if our gatherings here which are extremely confusing i think when the government says 50 up to 50 people inside I think they have to stress with masks on, right? And they're not doing that. So their communication, I think, is partly responsible for people gathering on mass. also it's it's COVID fatigue, but what they're saying is if in Sudbury that they don't have the same problem but they do in Peel, that's where they'll they'll pull back in a regional uh, manner.
2: Yeah, it's going to be a regional approach to this. They're going to target the areas where the case numbers are highest, but you are absolutely right. You know the communication has been confusing you'll remember these social bubbles, right? Mm -hmm. So if you are inside a party and there's somebody from a different social bubble that's part of that group of 50, you have to social distance, you have to wear a mask, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, And it's also the matter of policing all of this. The the gathering uh, cap for outside is 100, but, you know, how do you go into somebody's backyard and count all of the people that are there for a barbecue, etc. That is part of the challenge right now. Uh, you know, I asked Mayor John Tory about this yesterday because the premier had said, uh, you know, if, if municipalities immediately want to change the rules on gatherings, they can do that. Uh, the mayor said that, listen, this is pretty much a provincial jurisdiction, and it's, it's difficult because, you know, how can we go into somebody's backyard? How can we go into somebody's home and, and, and figure this out, right?
0: Okay, wait, Charles, so let me just get this challenge. straight. So you're saying that the mayor's saying that it's provincial, and Ford's saying, I'm going to leave it up to mis- municipalities on which one to pull back.
2: So okay, so this is what happened last week. Ford was asked about this, as he has been, you know, for the past couple of days, about the fact that we are seeing, you know, the group gatherings create a bit of a problem. He was also asked about nightclubs and bars and whether or not those should be shut down. Last week, this is what he said. He said, you know, under Section 22 of the Health Act, local public health units and mayors have the ability to change those guidelines and tighten up those restrictions if they feel they need to immediately. The mayor, I was, I asked him about that, and he said, listen, the, the premier and I are working well together, but we politely agree to disagree on this. We have consulted with our lawyers, and our lawyers tell us that the province has more leeway when it comes to this and that it would really need to come through a provincial order. It looks as though that process may be happening right now with the province. Uh, as I said, that fall pandemic plan is in the works. There are, you know, uh, proposals going to cabinet right now and the premier did say yesterday at his news conference that they are on top of this that they're going to have a lot more to say later this week so okay. we'll see where it goes but that's that's basically what the the split is between municipalities and province right now
0: i'm going to ask loretta to get uh clip number six ready from doug ford if i could get you to do that loretta because um Travis, you just uh, spoke about what he had mentioned uh, at the press conference about announcements that could be coming down the pipe. So let's hit this uh, this clip. We're going to be all over this, so just stay tuned. Over the next day or two, we're going to be rolling in out, out announcements for regions that are affected, and also about the uh, the testing and taking the burden off uh, the hospitals and, and other testing areas. Uh-huh. Now, you obviously, you're at these pressers, you follow this, this is your beat, this is what you do for Global News, but a lot of people are busy during the day, and quite frankly, COVID fatigue. So what is Doug Ford hinting at, that last announcement? We talked about the regional, um, you know, clawing back of social gatherings, but the next announcement we're attesting is concerned, because we understand there's long lineups.
2: Oh, you know, you just got to pop on Twitter or Facebook to see some of the pictures and the videos of these assessment centres I was at. You know, I'm back at Queen's Park now. Uh, Well, you know, sometimes. (laughs) But I was walking past Women's College uh, on Monday. There was a huge line, more than a block long, for that assessment center. This is what folks are seeing right across the province, and the premier realizes, you know, that he has to deal with this. What he was saying yesterday is that, you know, we may see testing in pharmacies. He said that he was on the phone with the CEO of Shoppers Drug Mart yesterday, Um, and that he doesn't want to announce anything before all of his ducks are in a row. But he alluded to the fact that they are working on something where they will substantially increase the amount of testing that can happen. They also likely will extend hours in some of these assessment centers so that more people can get tested. Uh, You know, we have heard stories of people going from assessment center to assessment center. And if you remember back at the beginning, of the pandemic, people couldn't get tests. And testing is really the key. And so they have to get uh, a handle on that they have to get these lines down. And that's something that they're working on right now as well.
0: So Travis, one of the other things that at the beginning of this pandemic that was problematic was the fact that um, labs couldn't handle the volume of tests coming in. We're all good there now if we extend the amount of places where tests can be conducted?
2: Well, so so they say. They say that we are in a better position, and the Premier has asked about this as well, that we're in a much better position now. Because initially, you know, we had no idea um, uh, about preparations for this. I mean, some people would argue with that, that we should have been more prepared initially. But now they have had time and not only when it comes to lab capacity, when it comes to things like ventilators and PPE, the premier has been focused on, uh, you know, what he says is local manufacturing when it comes to those ventilators and masks and gowns, etc. He was saying the other day that we, you know, he remembers the day that President Trump, you know, basically blocked masks from 3M coming and he vowed on that day never to allow Ontario to be in that position again. So he says, in fact, Ontario has ramped up manufacturing so much of this stuff that we can supply not only this province, but the entire country, if need be. Wow.
0: That's good. Good to know. Um, You no doubt have been following along with what's going on in Toronto, that Show Love program. In Toronto, I was just thinking about this while you were you know, talking about the urgency for testing. And if that isn't, it's not just the numbers climbing up for COVID. I think the urgency for people going out and getting tested really punctuates that there are a lot of people that have been lax on their social distancing, have been going to gatherings that are questionable. Yeah. Now we've got the Show Love TO initiative that the mayor announced this week. And it's all about going out and doing walking tours or trying to give love to businesses you haven't been to. I can't help but wonder if while trying to get a hold uh, on the pandemic, if the city and the province have created their own problems with that, they just weren't, uh, they didn't go to businesses and say, hey, let's try and establish initiatives for people to get out and do things beyond just going to a park. Because if we don't give people something to do, they're going to start doing it themselves in their own backyard. And that's where you end up with large groupings of people.
2: People have been stuck in their homes for months, right? I mean, you're you're absolutely right with COVID fatigue. I mean, people want to get out and about. And as much as we listen to experts say, you know, when this pandemic first started, that this is how it goes. You know, there's a spike and then it goes down and then there's a second wave. I don't know if everyone was really actually thinking that that second wave would ever come and now we realize that it may be here and that reality needs to sink in and i don't know if it's if it it has sunk in yet
0: See, you know, I'm awful fond of you and I respect you and and uh, and your knowledge and your insight into things. But I disagree with that. And and the reason why I disagree with that is I think people were well aware a second wave was coming because from the very start of this, we kept hearing second wave, second wave and the threat of it. And I think people wanted to get well getting was good. And if there's going to be a second <laughs> wave, people were thinking, you know what, I'm going to be selfish. I'm going to get it all in now, shove as much good time in as I can and get ready for this long winter
2: yeah well I mean is, sure, but that that creates the problem right of course of problem. course
0: it does, and that's and, human nature,
2: yeah, absolutely, and so now we are gonna have to go perhaps back into stage two where we're seeing things shut down, um and that's gonna be that's gonna be difficult uh you know there are also a number of other factors here when it comes to listen, the first part was in the spring and summer. This is going to be in the winter, so we're talking yeah. flu season here as well, right? So that's part of the problem with the assessment centres. Somebody gets a flu, the regular flu, these symptoms are pretty much exactly the same initially as COVID-19. So that, that is part of why we're seeing these large numbers at assessment centres as well. School is back in. Parents are very anxious. We're seeing a lot of kids in line now at assessment centres as well. So it it kind of is, as the Premier said the other day, the perfect storm. And so they need to get prepared to weather that storm, to battle that storm. The opposition parties are saying, listen, long-term care, are we prepared there? They don't think we are. We're seeing, you know, cases in Ottawa. There's a long-term home uh, in Ottawa where there are 46 cases right now, I think five deaths. Um, That's another area that are we prepared for. So, you know, there's a lot to consider here.
0: Yep. Travis, I want to thank you for your time. It's always a pleasure talking to you. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Talk to you soon. Nice way to start off the day. Uh, Travis Danraj. although kind of a buzzkill, the topic, I'm not going to lie, but listen, this is what we have to talk about. We have to make you aware of what the big stories of the day are and what the threats are as far as COVID-19. So uh, nice to have him on. Uh, I enjoy that thoroughly. All right. Sotheby's is auctioning off a 102-carat egg-sized diamond found in Canada's Victor Mine in 2018. Could set records. Darren Long is the co-host of The Real Money Show and VP of Sales for Guildhall Wealth Management. A firm which helps clients invest in gold, silver, and investment grade diamonds. So we've reached out to him. Welcome to the program, Darren.
1: Thanks for having me. It's a pretty special diamond that you're going to discuss there.
0: Oh, well, tell me about it. It was mined into beers. It was cut from a larger 271 karat rough diamond. It was polished for more than a year. The online bidding started this week, and the final process will be an in-person auction early in October in Hong Kong. The auction is being held without a reserve price, which means there's no minimum bid. How unusual is that when I, that comes to GEMS?
1: Well, that's unprecedented move for a diamond of this importance and value, and it's being held through Sotheby's Hong Kong. And that means basically that the highest bid takes the diamond. There is no reserve on the stone And uh, because of its importance, it's only the second time an an oval-shaped diamond of this size has been on the auction block in history, and only the eighth time in history that we've ever seen a diamond of this size. So it's more than likely this could fetch the highest price ever for this type of stone.
0: So does that signal that they're pretty confident nobody's going to lowball, nobody's going to try and get this, like, people want this diamond?
1: Well, they know the pre-estimate, uh, pre-auction estimate was between 10 to 30 million, and this diamond carries with it the, the perfection of the four Cs. Its its carrot size is enormous. It's a lollipop or egg. Uh, its color is is pure. There are no imperfections in the diamond. It's rated flawless. And the clarity and cut is excellent in terms of uh, the year that it took to cut the stone. It's unprecedented, but that's typical in the industry. It is how long it takes sometimes to cut a stone of this magnitude, uh, of this importance, and it is going to go for a very high price. I believe it will get close, if not beat, the all time high.
0: Okay, so when you say um, it is flawless, it's rated D in color. Can you tell us what a, what a flaw would what we can what would be considered a flaw so that we can understand what it means when something's flawless, when you're talking about diamonds.
1: Right. So in terms of flawless versus non-flawless stones, think of it uh, as looking at a white diamond and seeing a black spot on the diamond. And that's just a carbon imperfection uh, for lack of a better term. It's just coal inside of the uh, diamond itself. And the diamond uh, is, in this case, without any of those imperfections. And the rating scale for white diamonds starts at D. So D is the highest you can be rated. There is no C, D, or A. And it goes all the way down to Z, and then below Z would turn to colored diamonds, which is our uh, specialty at Hall. So this particular diamond carries with it every perfect aspect of what you could ask for in an auctionable diamond. And I think that's what really... Uh, gives us the impression that Sotheby's expects the highest amount uh, paid for this diamond and that people will come and pay that amount, and which means there needs to be no reserve whatsoever. whatsoever.
0: Uh, only about 1% or 2% of all diamonds end up being a Type 2A. What is a Type 2A? Because apparently this diamond is one.
1: It is a Type 2A and it is perfection. The Type 2, uh, 2A diamond means it has excellent polish and excellent uh, symmetry. It means it's completely colorless, so there is no modifier inside. Sometimes you'll get a white diamond, and when you're getting the report and looking at it, you'll see that it says, uh, in, 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 in terms of um, a different tinge, it could be a bluish tinge to the white diamond. This one is colorless. It's chemically pure, and there are no traces of what they call nitrogen or boron impurity. So this is as good as a diamond could possibly be. There is no better rating for a diamond than the Type 2A.
0: Okay, and so these this diamond, it is uh, the second largest oval diamond ever to come up for auction. Do you imagine that we're going to look at somebody just uh, grabbing this diamond and putting it in a safe? like is this won't be turned into any type of jewelry? This is an investment piece.:
1: Well, it is an investment for sure. It depends on the buyer for for, instance, when you're looking at diamonds of this magnitude, number one, the buyers. Uh, are generally going to be private. They're not going to be exposed to the public. You're not going to find out who the individual is. Unless a company's making a big push and maybe a graph or a Winston type of purchase is being made, they want to let people know they bought this diamond. But it is an investment for sure. There is no expectation that in 10, 15 years from now, this diamond won't be worth a lot more than what they paid for it right now. And that just goes to show us the direction that wealth and the perception of wealth is heading. Uh, Rare items like this are becoming far more common in the mainstream. And when we talk on our show even about colored diamonds... It's something that people are becoming more comfortable with, and again, it's just that uh, money is alive and well in certain pockets of the world. And uh, when you're talking about thirty million for a diamond, you're talking about the one percenters—people who have the most wealth of anyone in the entire world to be able to bid on these. But whether they said it or not will depend on the type of panache they want to show behind the scenes. If they have a loved one who uh, wants to support. Uh, you know, a hundred plus carat diamond. That's a pretty big, bold statement when you're going to a particular event or somewhere. But otherwise, this diamond will just get put in a safety deposit box. It'll be held uh, for some time as family wealth and uh, maybe pass through the generations.
0: Well, I think if you're going to be a knuckle dragger, that's the kind of knuckle dragger you want to be, wearing something like that. That is huge.
1: Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Darren.
0: All right, we know that men are from Mars, women are from Venus, but uh, could Venus actually be the site of uh, life within our solar system beyond the life that we know exists here, although it's an interesting one. Paul Delaney from York joins us on the program. Welcome to the show. It's good to have you on, as always, Paul.
3: Good morning, Kelly.
0: So astronomers say they've detected this chemical in the Venetian clouds that is likely to be produced only by organic life. My first dumb question of the segment would be, how can they detect a chemical in a cloud that is uh, on a planet so far away?
3: We're good, aren't we? That, that, that's the shortest answer. But the uh, longer answer is uh, all molecules give off characteristic signatures, electromagnetic signatures. So when you look at the sun, don't go out and do it, but you, know, you can see a bright white ball because your eyes are being triggered by energy flowing from the sun. Even if you close your eyes, you can feel the heat on your skin. That's energy that is coming from the sun. We can look for those types of characteristic signatures from molecules. And in this particular instance, phosphine is the molecule in question, it gives off a radio wavelength signature, which we are able to detect here on Earth. And we did with the Atacama Array and the James Clark Maxwell radio telescopes. So it's a radio signal that this particular molecule is transmitting and we've tracked that signal's origin down to phosphine in the Venusian atmosphere.
0: And apparently it stunned the researchers that were uh, looking at Venus to find this uh, phosphine uh, cl- in the clouds over Venus. Why was this unexpected?
3: Well, on Earth, phosphine is made by uh, um, microbes that don't like oxygen, anaerobic microbes. Uh, So we find that here on earth associated with life we, we can also produce it artificially uh but it is made by life that doesn't like oxygen so the story goes that uh, these researchers were looking at the venusian atmosphere and thinking okay let's have a, a bit of a snoop for this particular molecule uh because obviously the venusian atmosphere doesn't have any oxygen and as far back as the 1970s in Carl Sagan, it was mooted that you know maybe the atmosphere of venus had the possible traces of life and so the uh, researchers decided to sort of you know rule that possibility out by looking for this phosphine line and they found the line so they didn't rule out the existence of it they just you know stoked the fires of possibility that maybe just maybe there is you know some form of anaerobic life in the Venusian atmosphere but, right. but I've got've got, I've got to underscore the fact it's only a possibility I mean you you can make these molecules chemically geologically associated with lightning and volcanism so huh. it's one possibility it's not the only possibility
0: okay so why are we making such a big deal out of it is it just the first time <laughs> that life's been uh, kind of hinted at uh, that that actually we can follow in our solar system
3: well, everybody had sort of ripped Venus off. Uh, nobody really expected any form of life to be detectable on or in the Venusian uh, atmosphere. And here we have a possibility. So that, that was the first stunning thing. And the second thought is that you know, the, the chemical, the ways you make a phosphine chemically, we don't expect to be present in the Venusian atmosphere. We've captured uh, signs of phosphine in Jupiter and Saturn, but those are really extreme environments venus is extreme in a way that doesn't suggest phosphine is a likely chemical reaction Uh, so everybody is looking at this going well there's phosphine there is it could it really be associated with past life or current life on venus it's a possibility and therefore extremely exciting but it is only one possibility i don't want everybody to suddenly think oh all of a sudden we've got life on
0: venus (laughs) right paul why do we look for life on planets that we know are inhospitable i mean look what's the point
3: Because we find the strangest results when we're not expecting to find any results at all. So is it just because
0: we're inquisitive by nature or is there some sort of, can this help with our existence or, you know?
3: Venus really has a lot to tell Earth development and planetary development entirely. Uh, You know, it's, it's hot there at the moment. Like the surface of Venus is like 450 degrees Celsius. Why? Because of a runaway greenhouse effect what's in the atmosphere, carbon dioxide. Gosh, what happens if we put a lot of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere? Are we going to end up like Venus? This Uh. type of scenario unfolds when we look at planetary atmospheres. We want to understand how planets evolve from the beginning through stages of what we call habitability, creating life as you and I know it. What could be an outcome here on Earth? And we obviously don't want to do that experiment here. I really don't Mm. want to do that experiment here. So you look to other planets for those cues. And Venus is a great place to look for climate models for climate models, maybe it's a good place to look for life. That's what, you know, is is generating this excitement.
0: Paul, it's always a pleasure having you on the show. I really love your take on things like this. Thank you so much for joining us.
3: You're welcome, Kelly. Have a grand day.
0: EU two 640 Toronto expert in science and astronomy, York University prof, Paul Delaney. Well, that's it for today's podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. If you like this podcast and you enjoy the Kelly Catrera show, spread the word. We'd love to have more people tune into the podcast. As I always say at the end of the show, I couldn't do this without you and I wouldn't want to. So the more the merrier.